Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I spent most of this week preparing to continue our study in the book of Revelation, preparing to go on to chapter 3 and continue talking about the seven churches of Asia. And Friday night, it was uh, imposed on me to recognize the fact that this is the week when the whole world is going to at least marginally recognize the birth of Jesus Christ. And so it seemed like if we continued in the book of Revelation, that it would seem like I was ignoring that fact. And I'm not ignoring that fact. The birth of Jesus Christ is the single most extraordinary thing to happen in human history, that God became a man and dwelt among us here in human flesh. That's an astounding claim. Without the birth of Jesus, we would not have the atoning work of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, or the hope of grace that comes through Jesus. It all begins with his birth. Sadly, that event, which is an astounding event, now goes by the popular nomenclature of the Christ Mass. I kind of think it deserves a better name than that. But the birth of Jesus Christ is one of the most obvious demonstrations of how sovereign God actually is in all of human history. And yet it has become so dumbed down. It's become so standardized, commercialized, and all the other things that have happened to it. We forget what God is actually showing us and demonstrating through the birth of Jesus Christ. Also, it has become very anglicized. So much of the Jewish roots of the birth of Christ have been completely removed from it. And in fact, we have imposed our own symbol on it, which is a fat man who comes down your chimney and brings you gifts, as opposed to concentrating on the birth of Jesus Christ. So this morning, because I have learned the hard way that when God imposes things like this on me in the middle of the night, I am best to follow them, This morning, rather than talking about the seven churches of Asia, I'm going to talk about the sovereignty of God that is demonstrated in the birth of Jesus Christ, because it is absolutely astounding. For instance, you don't get any further than three chapters into the Bible, Genesis 3, 
Before you find a prediction, oftentimes known as the Proto-Euangelion, the first telling of the gospel, you don't get any further than that before there is a prediction from God that he is going to send someone into the world. Genesis 3.14 says, And I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. What an act of remarkable grace. Here the woman had succumbed to the temptations of the serpent and would have spent the rest of her life in league with the serpent if God himself had not intervened and created division between the serpent and the woman. And so he says, I'm going to put this againstness, this enmity between you, Satan, and between the woman, and between your offspring and hers in that moment. God just divided all of humanity into two streams, two camps, two seeds, the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent. I'm going to put this enmity between your offspring and between hers, and her offspring will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. In that very moment, God just said, I'm going to send through the woman someone who is going to crush Satan. And again, you're only three chapters into the book of Genesis. So God right away starts talking that he is going to send a redeemer. He is going to send a deliverer. He is going to send a Satan crusher into the world. Now, from the moment he said that, all of human history demonstrates the sovereignty of God in controlling the flow of history, in controlling People falling in love with each other, people getting married to each other, people having children, generations of people coming and going as he is dividing between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, resulting in the ultimate seed of the woman, the deliverer, the redeemer, and all of the history that happened between the prediction of the redeemer to come and the redeemer actually arriving. That roughly 4,000 years of history is all under the dominion and control of God or else it might not happen. If it is left up to the free will and free choices of human beings, if they could choose to do otherwise than God predicted, then there's no guarantee that the Savior is coming. But God not only made sure that the Savior actually appeared here on planet Earth, he told us when, He told us where, he told us how, and that all, as you read those prophecies in the Old Testament, there are so many Old Testament prophecies that have to do with the coming, the life, the death of Christ. This morning, we're just going to concentrate on those elements, those predictive prophecies of the Old Testament that have to do with the birth of Christ, but it's amazing that the prophets of the Old Testament were able to say with such specificity, this is what God's going to do thousands of years in advance. And then sure enough, every bit of it came true, just like he said. How does that not demonstrate how in control our God is? 
If he can say with that kind of exactitude, this is what I'm going to do. If he leaves that up to human beings, then it doesn't become a prophecy. It becomes a probability. Maybe it'll happen, maybe not. But if it is almighty sovereign God who says, this is what's going to happen, then it has to happen, which means that God is in absolute control of what's happening here on planet Earth, or else he couldn't keep predicting these things. For instance, we're told at the beginning of Matthew, at the beginning of Luke, we're told these extensive genealogies. Luke's reaches all the way back to Adam and traces the seed from Adam through Abraham, through David, and even tells us his tribal affiliation, that he's going to come out of Judah. That is so specific that you even find it in Genesis 49. The prediction is the scepter, the kingship, the rulership. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. Again, this is Genesis, first book of the Bible, and we're already being told that a ruler is coming, and that he's coming through Judah, and that the scepter, the law-giving, the power, the control, all belongs to him, this one who is coming. And in fact, the prediction goes on and says, the obedience of the nations shall be his. So that's saying not only that this one is coming, but that he is going to be a ruler, and not just a ruler of the Jews, but a ruler of the nations of planet Earth. So it's no surprise, as we continue through the book of Revelation, that we're going to see all this talk of a kingdom to come, all of which is just a fulfillment of a prophecy that goes all the way back to Genesis 49. There is this one coming and he's coming through Judah, and he's coming to be a king. And his scepter and his rulership will not depart from him. That's an astounding thing for God to say that early in human history, unless he's confident that he can pull it off. If he's not confident that he can pull it off, then he has to leave it up to human beings. And human beings, as I'm sure you will agree, Mess up everything. You know, last night I had dinner with David Morris, an elder Spickard and elder Pickett. David is in town for a day to preach for elder Pickett. And I like getting together with preacher friends like that. And we all agreed that church is a great idea. Church is a great concept. We're so glad that God came up with Church, what a great idea. But then he let people in it. And as soon as you introduce people into anything, people make it messy. And that's the way it's been in all of human history. So either God was going to leave it up to people who mess up everything to somehow see to it that Jesus would be born from the tribe of Judah, or this is an absolute demonstration of the complete sovereignty of God in the birth of Christ. When Christ came to the planet, 
and was born to Judah. That was a demonstration that God has been in control of human history ever since Genesis 49. I would reach back and say, since Genesis 3. I would reach back and say, before the foundation of the world. This story that's being told all over the world this week is a story of God's absolute sovereignty, not just the birth of a baby in a manger. And I want you to see that. I want you to really recognize and understand that. So that means that God himself is going to enter into his own creation. This is what he has been predicting. Isaiah 7 puts it this way, that not only now has God said that he's going to come and be a ruler, that he's going to send one into the world who's going to control the nations, but then he tells us the astounding way that this one is going to get onto the planet. Isaiah 7, 4, therefore, the Lord himself will give you, Israel, will give you a sign, a demonstration that everything else he has promised you is actually going to come true. He's going to give you a down payment. He's going to give you a sign, and that sign is going to be that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's going to be the name of the one who is going to come through this particularly miraculous methodology of a woman, a virgin, giving birth. And God says, that's a sign to Israel that everything else I have promised you is going to come true. So, again, when you're driving through your neighborhood and you see somebody has got a, a statue of Mary and Joseph and the baby out in a manger, out in their lawn, what are they really demonstrating? They're demonstrating that God, who is in control of human history, sent a sign into the world to demonstrate to Israel his complete intention to accomplish among them everything he has ever promised them. That's what it means. Just this week, Somebody commented on one of my YouTube videos. It was actually the first video of our systematic theology series. Apparently, he liked what he was hearing, but then he wrote, but it's a shame. And you know what the big shame was for this fellow? He said, it's a shame that this man, I assume he was speaking of me since I was the only person in the video, it's a shame that this man holds to the Jewish dream of a restored earthly kingdom and the reinstatement of the Jewish temple. He undermines the gospel of grace, which is for both Jews and Gentiles in this age, not in the age to come. Now, aside from the comment about this age and the age to come, he says it's a shame that I believe in the Jewish dream of a restored earthly kingdom. Why do I believe that? Because that's what the Bible says, and that's what's being demonstrated by the sign that God gave to Israel. Gee, it's just a shame that I believe that, huh? Anyway, not only did God tell us the miraculous means through which his Redeemer was going to enter into the world. But then he told us exactly where. That's amazing. How can he do this? Micah 5.2 says, 
But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times, the ever-being one, the one who has always existed, the one whose origins reach all the way back into time immemorial. That one is going to enter human flesh through the womb of a little Jewish virgin, and she is going to do that because he is going to rule over Israel. That's what Micah says. He's going to be the ruler over Israel, and Isaiah has told us he's going to be the ruler of all the nations of the earth. And he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Again, the amount of specificity that God puts out there. Almost like God is saying, check me. See if I don't do this. I'm telling you way in advance, hundreds and thousands of years, what I'm going to do. And now you have the opportunity to watch me do it in time and history and just see if I don't accomplish everything I said I'm going to accomplish. And that I'm accomplishing it as a demonstration, as a sign that I'm also going to do everything else that I've written about. Everything else that you've heard about, everything else that's prophesied of me, I'm going to accomplish guaranteed by the fact that there's a baby in a manger. So again, when you're driving through your neighborhood and you see a baby in the manger, remember that that is the sign and seal from God that the sovereign one is going to accomplish everything in human history that he ever said he was going to accomplish. And he's the one who said that. I didn't make that up. It's not a theological novelty. He said, I'm sending that one into the world as a sign, as a demonstration, not only of my existence, but of the fact that I'm going to accomplish everything I have promised you. This promise from Micah 5.2 that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem was so certain, the Jews were so convinced of the reality of it that when the wise men came to Herod and said, we've come to worship the king of the Jews, where is he? And is it worth pointing out once again that the wise men were not at the manger They arrived about two years later, and they found the young lad in the house. That's what the Bible says. And yet when the wise men came to Herod and said, where is this one? Herod said, well, I'm going to have to go consult. Matthew 2, 4 to 6. Herod called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judah. And they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. I appreciate the fact that they took the Bible so seriously that they could say, this is what's written down in the scripture, so that is what has to happen. I wish we all had that attitude. This is what's written, that's what's going to happen. And then they quote from Micah, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For out of you will come a ruler who is the shepherd of my people, Israel. Okay, so now God has told us where. The first century Jewish leaders were convinced by the scripture that that was where. We know the technique that it's going to be through a virgin. 
We know who it is that's coming into the planet. He's the one who's going to crush Satan. He's the redeemer that God is sending into the world. And that is the reason that Isaiah can write unto us, speaking of Israel, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. You can see now why that was so important for Isaiah to say and prophesy because there have been all these predictions of this one that's coming and this one that's going to be born through a virgin, the one that's going to be born as a baby. Isaiah picks it up and says, yeah, and that sign was given, speaking in the past tense and yet speaking at 700 years in advance. That sign actually is accomplished in human history. A child is born and the son is given in the same way that the prophecy to Judah was that the scepter and law-giving was not going to depart from him until the one came to whom it all belonged. Isaiah confirms that and says, this child who's born and this son who is given, the government is going to rest upon his shoulders and that his name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor and then astoundingly, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Now we know the one that's coming is part of the Godhead. He's part of the Trinity. He's part of the inconceivably powerful, eternal God who's going to take up human flesh and walk around here on this dusty ball with the rest of us. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince, Ruler of Peace. I like that name a lot because there's no peace in this world. This world is in all kinds of turmoil constantly. And you turn on the news every single day and there's somebody else out there trying to scare you and rile you up. And yet he is called the ruler, the prince, the monarch of peace. And he's called the eternal father. So then it's no surprise that when the angel Gabriel is talking to Mary, who, by the way, just happens to be a virgin. Wasn't that lucky? Because Isaiah has said that a virgin is going to conceive, and this is going to be a sign to you. What if Mary, by her own free will, had determined uh, not to save herself for marriage? No, she didn't have an option here, because she's in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God who has controlled all of human history to bring it to this particular moment where this particular virginal girl is told this by the angel Gabriel. Luke 1, 35 says, The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. There's the intimacy of the relationship between the one who's coming and God himself. He is the eternal father. He is the mighty God. He is the prince of peace. And God himself, through his angel Gabriel, announces to Mary that the child is going to be the son of God. Okay, so now we've established that this one who is coming is also going to be deity. He is the son of God. But then astoundingly... There is this other prediction in the Old Testament that the one who's coming is also going to be the son of man. So he's not only son of God. He's also son of man. He's going to be fully human, son of man. And he's going to be fully God, son of God. 
When has that ever happened in human history? That is a completely unique combination that is prophesied in the Old Testament and then accomplished in the birth of Jesus through the Virgin in Bethlehem, just like God predicted because God's, what's that word? Sovereign, because he's completely in charge of what happens in human history. And he's demonstrating it through sending the Savior into the world. Continuing in Luke 1, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call his name Aesus, Jesus. In the Hebrew, it's Yeshua. He is the deliverer. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. There's the Son of God the most high God, the omnipotent God, the sovereign, all-powerful God, he's going to be called the son of that God. And the Lord God, that sovereign God, that mighty God, that God who's in charge of human history, that Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. How Jewish is that? Because that is the fulfillment of yet another Old Testament promise given to David that Someone from his seed, someone from his lineage was going to sit on his throne and rule over the tribes of Israel. And here at his birth is yet again the promise that God himself, the sovereign, is going to give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants. Who are Jacob's descendants? Israel. That's Israel. And he's going to rule over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Okay, a never-ending kingdom that is ruled over by a son of David and ruling over the descendants of Jacob, of Israel. Gee, where do I get that notion again of that Jewish dream of a kingdom to come? Because at the birth of Jesus, I'm going to have to at some point refer to this as Christmas, Because the Christmas story affirms it. You get that? Oh, and I've got way more evidence. I'm going to keep piling on the evidence that this is a phenomenally Jewish moment. This is the Jewish Messiah coming into the world. And if you grasp that, you can really begin to understand how astounding the grace of God is that he would let you in. I mean, the nation of Israel has all these prophecies and promises. They even have a Messiah who's come Because the God of Israel, who keeps calling himself the God of Israel over and over again, as we've been studying the book of Isaiah, how many times have we seen the phrase, the God of Israel? God keeps calling himself the deliverer of Israel. And then he sends into the world the deliverer of Israel. And the angel says to Mary in Luke 1, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David And just so that we don't start thinking that that throne is something in heaven, he says, and he will reign. He will rule over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So in that speech, Gabriel announced that the God-man is going to be the fulfillment of Daniel's vision that I mentioned earlier. This is from Daniel 7. I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, in my vision at night... I looked, and there before me was one, not like the Son of God. He uses very particular nomenclature and says, 
I looked, and there in front of me was one like the Son of Man. He looked like a human. He didn't look like the angelic spiritual realm. Daniel recognized him as being the Son of Man. So the Bible equally calls him Son of God and Son of Man. Only one person can fulfill both of those names. And the next time you look at the baby in the manger, he's the one that's fulfilling, satisfying both of those prophecies at the same time. He's the Son of God and the Son of Man. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power, all nations, all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Are you feeling the language? The language just keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again. The reason that there was a baby in a manger was a sign to Israel that everything else they've been promised about a coming kingdom, that God is going to fulfill everything he has prophesied to them, that is all established in the baby in the manger. That's the Christmas story. God is absolutely sovereign through all of this. The fact that God gave Christ as a redeemer to God's people proves and satisfies the requirements of the newer, higher, better covenant. The only way that we get to approach God is by this new covenant. If God did not make a new covenant, none of us have any hope. The new covenant is wrapped up in the baby in the manger. The fact that God sent a baby in a manger is the guarantee of the satisfaction and the establishment of a new covenant whereby even we, even sinners like us, can approach this ineffable holy God. Jeremiah 31 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. That was the promise of the new covenant. And then at the Last Supper, before Christ died, he turned to his apostles and said, this is my blood of the covenant. Luke even says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There would be no new covenant covenant or salvation for sinful Gentiles like us were it not for the baby in the manger. The baby in the manger is the sign, the seal, the security of our eternal salvation. Next time you look at him, recognize him as that. Okay, that was all truly genuinely introduction. And now we can all turn to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to read and we're going to see yet again how Luke, though a Gentile writing to Gentiles, puts this entire story in a very Jewish setting and includes very Jewish promises. You cannot extricate 
the historic Judaism of this story without doing damage to the story. And again, the reason that I emphasize that is because you cannot truly appreciate the astounding grace of God without understanding that not only do you not deserve his grace because you are a sinner, because you are so depraved, but also because you're not even of the right lineage. You don't have the right background. You don't have the right pedigree. You don't have the right genealogy. And yet he adopted you into his family through the baby in the manger. I know. I just looked back at Joni and she shook her head. And and that's right. This is sovereign stuff that's going on here. This is not just hallmark stuff. I'm so tempted to, I'm fighting myself all morning here this morning, trying not to talk about all of the trappings of Christmas that have in so many ways undermined the beauty of the real story. And all I'm trying to get you to do today is have some recognition of the real story because before all the trappings of Christmas, before all the marketeering of Christmas, the first century, when they read this story, they understood it as the promised fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. They weren't thinking Santa Claus. They weren't thinking gift-giving. They weren't thinking wreaths and Christmas trees. They were thinking, our God has sent us a sign to guarantee everything else he has prophesied for us as a people. Praise, worship, and glorify that God who would enter into human history and establish his word with this very tangible evidence of this baby in a manger. That's astounding. And it's been erased by all the flummery of Christmas. And all I'm trying to do is insert a little Bible back into the Christmas story. I'm going to start reading in Luke 1. We're going to read a lot of Luke this morning. Start reading in Luke 1, starting at verse 46, because I already read a couple of earlier portions of it. This is right after Mary has visited with Elizabeth. Elizabeth, of course, is carrying John the Baptist. John the Baptist has a baby in her womb, about six months old at this moment, leaps for joy as the spirit enters him, even in his mother's womb. And then Mary says, starting at verse 46, my soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Is it worth pointing out that Mary in the Bible points out that she needs a Savior? She is not the Savior. She is not co-redemptrix. She is not co-mediatrix. She's another human being who needs a Savior. Just thought I'd point that out for my Catholic friends that are listening. My soul exalts the Lord My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble estate of his bondservant. For behold, from this time on, all generations 
will count me as blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. And he has scattered those who were proud in their thoughts and in the thoughts of their heart. And he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What has she just done? She's reached back into the Old Testament all the way back to Abraham and said God is keeping promises he has made to Israel ever since Abraham and this child that is being born right now in my womb is the guarantee that everything God has promised us is still true because he is fulfilling the prophecies at this very moment. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his own mercy, which mercy he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. She even names Abraham by name. And to his descendants, his offspring, forever. Who are his offspring? Israel. And by the Holy Spirit, Mary speaks and says the same thing we've been seeing so far this morning, which is the baby that is within her is the fulfillment of the prophecies reaching all the way back to Abraham that God has made to Israel. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she brought forth a son, and her neighbors and her, and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it came about that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. Zacharias had a conversation previously with the angel Gabriel, and the angel Gabriel told him what was going to happen, and Zacharias made the critical mistake of asking how. And for arguing with the angel, the angel says, that's it, you don't get to speak anymore until the child comes. So this is the moment when they're circumcising the child, and it's time to name the child. So his relatives are asking him, what are you going to name the baby? They assume it's Zacharias because he can't speak. God opens up his mouth at that moment, and he's about to speak by the Holy Spirit. Verse 60 says, his mother answered and said, no, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him to be called. So he asked for a tablet, and he wrote on the tablet as follows, his name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once, his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. And fear came on all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in their minds, saying, 
What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him, and his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now, Luke has taken the time to say that Zechariah is speaking, Zacharias is speaking by the Holy Spirit. If Zacharias is speaking by the Holy Spirit, is what he says now accurate? <coughs> yeah, absolutely. So pay attention to what he actually says. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Of course, he would refer to Yahweh as the God of Israel. That's the name that God has given himself over and over in the Old Testament. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he is spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And then he quotes from the prophets, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers. Do you understand what Zacharias is saying by the Holy Spirit? He's saying promises were made to our fathers, our forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Promises that God has made of salvation for Israel and a redeemer for Israel, and that is being accomplished right here, right now. We're seeing the satisfaction and fulfillment of all those promises. Sovereign God is accomplishing that right now, and he's doing it because he remembers what he promised our forefathers. This is the fulfillment of Scripture. All I'm driving at is, this baby in a manger thing is a demonstration of the absolute sovereignty of God, and they got it. And the Holy Spirit said it, and John announced it, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. What oath was that? We know it is the Abrahamic covenant. The baby in the manger is a demonstration that God is still keeping the Abrahamic covenant. That's what the Holy Spirit just said. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. To grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him for all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercies of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until the day of his public appearance to Israel, chapter 2. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited world. This was the first census that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone in his own city, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, 
to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house of the family of David. Wasn't that lucky that the Jewish virgin who God chose to deliver the Redeemer through just happened to be betrothed to a man from the lineage of David who, when a Roman governor decreed a census, would cause that man to have to go back to Judea, to Bethlehem, in order to register for that census. And he took his pregnant wife with him, which meant that the baby Jesus would be born in Bethlehem exactly like the Bible predicted. Now, do you realize how many little details went into that? That if any one of them went wrong, if Joseph and Mary messed up on any one of those little details, that prophecy that had been around ever since the time of Micah doesn't come true. And yet, absolutely sovereign God made sure that every single detail went exactly as he predicted. And that meant that he had to control human history for generations and generations leading up to that exact moment. That's mind-blowing. Verse 6. It came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Again, Really lucky. While they were in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Messiah. And this will be a sign for you. Does that sound familiar? Here's an angel confirming what was already predicted in Isaiah, that the baby in the manger was going to be a sign for all Israel. Then an angel comes, just so nobody misses it, and says to the first witnesses, to the shepherds, you're going to go and see this, and it's going to be that sign, that sign that was predicted 700 years ago. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth among men with whom he is well pleased. That's an interesting rendering of the Greek phrase there. The Greek phrase does speak of peace, peace on earth. But the word that is translated, with whom he is well pleased, that entire phrase is one Greek word. It is eudakia. You can hear the E-U at the beginning, which means good. Eudakia means good intention, which is why the King James went with peace, goodwill toward men. That goodwill is their translation of the word eudakia. What it means is God has a good intention for men. 
fallen men, sinful men, depraved men, men who desperately need help, God has a good intention for them. But because in the Greek that word eudikia is at the end of the sentence, so that what you read is irene and anthropos, men, so peace among men, and then the word eudikia just sits there by itself. And as a consequence, the NASB decided to keep it till the end of the sentence and said that it was peace among men with whom God is well pleased. I'm really curious which sinful men God was well pleased with. If it was up to me to render it, I would say that there is peace on earth. There's peace among human beings because of the good intention of God who has prophesied this, who has promised this, who has demonstrated this for thousands of years, and now it's all coming true, a demonstration that God, in his good intention for men, his good will toward men, is now accomplishing this sign of everything else that he's going to accomplish. But it's hard to say all that in one word. It's hard to say that even in a phrase. But I, I don't particularly agree with the phrase, among men with whom God is well pleased. It came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things that were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. And when eight days were completed before his circumcision... His name was then called Jesus, the name that was given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And they came to offer, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. And he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. By the way, if the Holy Spirit is upon him, and if Luke took the time to tell us the Holy Spirit is upon him, when he now speaks by that Holy Spirit, do we have to assume it's true? Okay. Read what he said. He came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he, this man, took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, Thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
Maybe hadn't died yet, hadn't grown yet, hadn't taught yet, hadn't assembled a church yet, didn't have any apostles, didn't keep a Last Supper yet. And yet, because the promises of the Lord are sure and certain, all that he had to see was the baby. As soon as Simeon saw the baby Jesus, he knew that everything else God promised was equally true because he had seen the sign that God had sent. That's the baby in the manger. When you look at the baby in the manger, that is the sure and certain guarantee that God is going to do everything else that he's ever promised you he's going to do. That means he's going to do everything else that he's ever promised Israel he's going to do. Because he is as sovereign right now as he was through the 4,000 years of history that culminated in the coming of the child in the manger. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and his mother were amazed at the things that were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign. How often by the Holy Spirit is it said exactly as Isaiah prophesied, this baby is a sign. This baby is an indication of God's keeping promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the sure and certain guarantee that he's going to keep every other promise that he's made to everybody. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign, and he will be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts shall be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years and lived with a husband for seven years after her marriage. And then, as a widow to the age of 84, and she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. So what is the baby? According to the Holy Spirit, he is the sign of the redemption of Israel. And God didn't use one witness, he used two. Adequate witness that this is the child who is the surety and the guarantee of the redemption of Israel. You cannot extricate the very, very Jewish, very, very Israel elements of the Christmas story without doing tremendous damage. But I read all that this morning to make one point. God is completely and utterly sovereign, and the baby in the manger proves it because of how he prophesied it, how he controlled history to accomplish it, And then how many people he had point at it, including angels and prophets speaking by the Holy Spirit who point at the baby and say, he's the sign. He's the one who is the guarantee 
that God is going to keep the promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the descendants and Israel and David. He's going to sit on the throne of David. He is the fulfillment of all these prophecies. This is the marvelous, excuse me again for calling it this, this is the marvelous Christmas story. And sadly, through time and through all of our traditions, we have forgotten what the story is until we think that the story is nothing more than what Linus told Charlie Brown. That it's just this very simple little story of a baby in a manger, which people like very much. But he's not a baby in a manger anymore. He is still sovereign Lord God who is sitting on a throne at the right hand of God. And when John saw him in the book of Revelation, he was like the ancient of days. And he had eyes of fire and he had feet that are going to stamp out the... And when I say stamp out, I don't mean eradicate. He's the one who's going to bring about the judgment of God and the wrath of God. He is the ruler. He is the sovereign. He was a baby in a manger one time. And the one time that happened, he was the demonstration of the sovereignty of God who is going to accomplish everything God has ever promised. That's what the baby was doing in the manger. He was being a sign specifically to Israel and through the new covenant to all of us. Based on that knowledge, I can wish you all a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> because, man, it is such a good story and such a phenomenal faith-building guarantee of our sovereign God. And I hate what has happened to it. I hope you have some sense now of what it was really meant to be. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.